Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is episode 155 of Historically Thinking. Winston Churchill termed the Seven Years' War, what Americans think of as the French and Indian War, the First World War, since its battles took place from Germany to western Pennsylvania to Manila. If we accept that title, then the War of the American Revolution was the Second World War, stretching as it did from the 13 British American colonies to Europe to India, and thus the Napoleonic Wars were the Third World War. But neither of those two previous wars could approach the size and scale of the cataclysm that were the Napoleonic Wars. As my guest Alexander Mikabriza argues, they were the most consequential events between the Protestant Reformation and the Great War of 1914-1918. And like those other two events, the Napoleonic Wars had effects which continue to our own time. Alexander Mikabridze is Professor of European History at the Louisiana State University at Shreveport. He has been acclaimed as one of the great Napoleonic scholars of today, the author of what has been described as a masterpiece, the new The Napoleonic Wars, a global history published this year by Oxford University Press. This is his second appearance on Historically Thinking. Our previous conversation, held five years ago on this topic, is one of the most popular we have ever recorded. Alex, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much, Al. It is an honor and a pleasure to be back. Uh, um, I didn't realize it has been five years. Yeah, <laughs> five years. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I have to look at what episode number. I think it's something like episode five or ten or something wow. like that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I, I, I don't think I realized back when that that was that was part of your process. We were you were in the, you were in the as we'll see in the midst of writing this very this enormous book, a book that is a danger to feet everywhere uh, if dropped. Um, so that we were you were deep in it at the time. So I I I, I was I did not go back and listen to it to not cover stuff we covered. But let's start at the. Sort of, let's start at the beginning, which means sort of starting at your end. Um, 1793, 1815, uh, that's sort of, that's the Napoleonic Wars, even though Napoleon is, begins as a what, captain at the beginning of this? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, if, a lieutenant? Uh, that's right. Um, 1793, yeah. he's really distinguished himself at Toulon, and uh, he's promoted to general that year. Oh, okay. So, so... Uh, What's the what's the butcher's bill after it's all over? What what's the what's the best estimates at the dead and wounded of this uh, world this world war? Um, that's where we we get in a territory where um, I think the proper way to say it is a guesstimate, right? As you said, uh, yeah. rather than mm-hmm. um, any precise numbers. And um, um, I've been arguing uh, or in, uh, in this book that the effect of this war should not be limited to Europe as, uh, alone. And, and when we talk about guesstimates or for the losses uh, for military or otherwise for Europe, um, it has been estimated that um, probably as many as 4 million, uh, 4 million people perished in Europe between 1792 and 1815, which would have been about um, 2.5%, um, close to uh, 3% of uh, the total population of Europe at this time. 
um, however, in the, in, in the book, I'm arguing of expanding the um, uh, scope, uh, both in terms of narrative of the Napoleonic Wars, but also of the uh, loss of life. And if we in, include the loss of life in other areas, such as uh, Middle East, India, uh, uh, especially in, in Latin America, then I think we will get um, to a far higher number, uh, probably of six, maybe seven million people. Mm-hmm. So if we add uh, Haiti, uh, particularly the, the the later stages of the Haitian Revolution, if we add all of Bolivar's and some, all the various wars of national liberation, I, I guess we could also add to this, we could add various wars in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. Especially uh, the, the wars in India were uh, in- inherently connected to the events in, in Europe in a sense that there was uh, an overlying excuse for the British expansion in India, of, uh, uh, the, the excuse was of, of French threat. Uh, and then, of course, the events in Latin America were um, in, directly connected to the French takeover of Spain in 1808. And so what were some, what are some other ways of, of measuring or, or of, of, of putting the impact of the Napoleonic Wars into numbers? Um, so one, yes, uh, you know, beyond the human lives, which, of course, is, is uh, poignant and then just heartbreaking just to uh, to look at the immensity of this loss of life. Uh, I think we also can uh, look at it from economic and material point of view. The military uh, res- costs, the, the expenses consumed the lion's share of state's resources um, throughout this period, um, especially uh, when the war was uh, fought on such scale. Uh, Britain conducted uh, warfare on a global scale, and, as, uh, and France tried to match it, although it was never able to really compete on equal terms uh, on, on when it came to the global uh, dimension of this war. Uh, Spain, of course, uh, spent a lot of uh, resources and material on, on uh, defending its empire. Uh, and if we look on the impact of this war, what we see is that by 1815, many parts of Europe, Latin America, uh, were suffered tremendously from the devastation uh, we, we can see in Portugal and Spain that the war had devastated much of the countryside. Uh, to give you a sense, in province of Extremadura in, in, in Spain, we see the loss of 15% of the population and much of the countryside completely devastated. Uh, in, in places like Cadiz, uh, 40% of its buildings uh, and more than half of its population was gone. Or think about Moscow, uh, the, the great city, right, the former capital of, uh, of Russia, uh, that um, was completely, uh, you know, almost completely burnt, uh, burnt to the ground. Out of nine thousand major buildings that it had, uh, over six hundred, three hundred were gutted out and burned and destroyed. Um, and of course, Germany uh, suffered tremendous devastation during eighteen thirteen campaign. And same can be said uh, about uh, parts of uh, North America, where we had uh, right the, the War of eighteen twelve with with significant. Uh, losses uh, and in other parts uh, where the warfare was indeed quite um, uh, quite uh, quite devastating to, to to the areas and we think and we would think then also the economic effects um, I'm thinking thinking North America, Jefferson's um, ill-fated embargo against uh, Britain and France. Um, okay, it was a it was an own goal, uh, but it was still uh, that that was just one of the many ripple of economic effects around the entire world. Indeed, um, in, in that same vein, we can talk also about the Corn Laws, right? That the British government introduced, yep. or the 
uh, tariff system that Napoleon practiced back in in, in Europe. Um, so th- there is a, a great economic impact that the war has uh, on Europe, uh, both in short term and long term. And of course, politically, uh, the war has a profound impact on both Europe and the outside world. Um, it, it, my argument in the book was that uh, is that Napoleon's impact and legacy, I think, is um, equally important uh, in places like uh, Latin America, where instead of the Spanish Empire, we see the emergence of uh, of a series of independent, right by 1825, uh, dozens of independent states that politically are no longer subservient to to Madrid, or events like emergence of independent Brazil, uh, or at least increasingly independent Brazil, especially by after 1822, uh, or the British takeover of India politically, uh, are all inherently tied to this. And uh, one one of the core a- a- accents that I'm, I, I devote in, in the book is the Middle East, where we see the reshaping of um, the political reality in the Middle East in the wake of the French invasion of Egypt in 1798, and then subsequent uh, Russo-Turkish wars uh, that that have a profound impact on the region. Um, how did you originally get the idea uh, of the of doing a, a world history of the Napoleonic Wars? Um, where, where did that argument come from? That uh, that we ha- it was best to think about them not as a European event but as a world event. I think uh, two things here uh, played a role. Uh, one was that um, I was a graduate student in search of a good topic. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, this past uh, February, late February, we had a conference back in Florida State University where I graduated from. And we uh, we had a special uh, event organized for my uh, uh, major professor, the, the person who directed me, uh, Professor Donald uh, Horvath, who was the, who is an esteemed Napoleonic school, scholar of his own in his own right. But I remember I was tell, I was reminding him in that evening that uh, one of the first meetings I had uh, this young boy from uh, war stricken, impoverished country of Georgia coming to Florida and sitting down with him, and he asked me, "Okay, what do you want to work on?" And I actually mentioned to him this possibility of writing international history. And he uh, paused for a minute, and he, you know, then told, he asked me, "You do want to finish and get a PhD?" Right? <laughs> and, uh, so, but, uh, but the second part of it is, um, uh, I think, my own background in the sense that uh, Georgia um, played a role um, in, in, in or it, it has a, has, a, has a place in in the Napoleonic uh, Wars narrative, uh, the way I, I look at it. But it, it has never been mentioned as such. So when I read books about Napoleonic Wars or Napoleon, his invasion in Egypt, or later on, I've been always, of course, looking for, uh, for any references to what, what was Georgia's place in this, uh, or, or, or Caucasus, right? The Caucasus region as a whole, what was the role in place? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't find it in, in Western narrative, but in Georgia, we always you know, talked about the importance of the Napoleonic Wars in what uh, became the Russian annexation of Georgian kingdom. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, Russians pre, you know, took, took advantage of, of the realities. Um, and so um, I think that played a role, is the desire to uh, see the uh, conception, uh, the, the vision of Napoleonic, uh, narrative, uh, of Napoleonic Wars uh, expanded to include areas that I felt should be there. And then once you start following that road, you realize there are other areas that should be also I- included. And, and, and so it goes. In fact, you know, the book, as, as large as it is, 
is uh, well, you know, I was not able to include some some areas. So, for example, my hmm. my Greek friends or my Albanian friends uh, would be probably uh, justly so uh, upset not to see enough attention devoted to the hmm. use of Ali Pasha or Janina or the Greek re- or the Greek uh, movements that ultimately result in the uh, all-out revolt, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So, or uh, even Napoleon's policies in places like uh, Algiers, uh, Morocco, where you, you have active relationship, and, and Napoleon actually has in 1808 uh, a special mission to North Africa with the idea of invading and taking over parts of Algiers and Libya. But I was unable to include it because it never materialized during Napoleonic's time, but came to fruition later on. So even as book as as large as this book is, it still has gaps in 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 terms of narrative, because the topic is so vast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we won't be able to cover everything in the book. <laughs> uh, I don't want to be have that. I don't have a three hour long podcast, and uh, <laughs> uh, that we might we wouldn't be done by that time. So let's. Uh, I mean, I've decided to take uh, my privilege and skip around, but I think we'll follow. Let's follow the sun. Uh, we'll start east and we'll move uh, west. So let's start with India. Um, you devote several chapters here and there to India. Uh, the first one is, I believe, chapter five, which you describe as the origins of the great game. Um, to give a little bit of background, France had been driven out of India in the Seven Years' War, um, more or less. So why did India become a focus then of the Napoleonic Wars if France was already out? Um, not uh, entirely um, out. Uh, the French do have um, parts, uh, uh, areas of India that are still under their control. Uh, probably the most famous one will be the great region of Pondicherry. Um uh, so the French are still there, but uh, but more crucially, it's it's in the British uh, mindset, and especially among the key members of the British government, the um, the fear is of the French return, um, and that's why the term the Great Game, of course, is is usually used for a later period of the 19th century, and usually refers to the strategic rivalry between British Empire and the Russian Empire for the supremacy in. Central Asia, which has a direct relevance to India. But uh, in, in this book, I'm arguing that the roots of this great game, or what ultimately, you know, if you believe that there was indeed this great game, because I, I know some of my colleagues have questions whether the great game was an actual thing or not, but whether the, this political, um, um, diplomatic, even military maneuvering that the, later on the European powers will be engaged in, the roots of it go back to uh, to this era, and especially, um, um, my argument is, to 1798. Uh, if we look at the traditional narrative of the Napoleon's invasion of Egypt in 1798, you get an, uh, a picture uh, that is something like this. Napoleon and the French government decide to go to Egypt to establish a French colony there with an ultimate goal of threatening British interests in India. Napoleon goes there. Uh, right, invades, takes over Egypt, spends about a year, and then in August of 1799 he escapes, and uh, that's essentially it. There might be a you know a post postscriptum saying that the French stayed until 1801, and then they are defeated and then forced to retreat. So in this book, what I'm tr- what I try to do is I try to broaden the the uh, the confines of our discussion of, of the invasion of Egypt. Uh, by saying, yes, all, all that happened indeed. 
But it is more important to for me uh, to see not what Napoleon did in Egypt, because ultimately it's not uh, it's not uh, it's not as 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 crucial, I think, to the story. Yeah. No, it, it is important, but it, mm-hmm. it is uh, the international dimensions that I think are e- uh, uh, equally, if not more important. And specifically, I'm uh, I'm I'm paying attention to the British response to the French invasion in 1798. Um, here, um, the Two, uh, if I can identify these two core individuals mm-hmm. in the British government, these are the the new Governor General of British East India Company, uh, a remarkable guy by the name of Richard Wellesley, right, the, the brother of the future uh, Duke of Wellington, uh, Arthur Wellesley. Uh, Arthur at this time is still in, in the shadow of his uh, of, of his more distinguished brother, and he uh, Richard uh, is on his way to India when Napoleon invades Egypt. Is in fact stuck in uh, South Africa when he receives the news, and he writes this remarkable memorandum in which he lays out what needs to be done in India to protect British interests from um, the French invasion. And, and uh, Wellesley is convinced it is forthcoming. And the second important individual um, that I, I, I think played a crucial role in this is um, uh, Henry Dundas, who at this time is the Secretary of State for War, and the president of the board of control of the British East India Company. And so here these two men, uh, Wellesley and Dundas, uh, are convinced that the ultimate goal of, of the French is to actually invade uh, uh, India and, and dislodge the, the British. And so they respond to it by arguing that Britain needs to take a proactive uh, posture and uh, take preemptive actions to uh, anticipate the French moves. Even though British Foreign Minister William Granville disagreed with that, even though he downplayed the importance of the French invasion of Egypt. Ultimately, uh, Dundas and Wellesley uh, um, play a huge huge role in how the British response played out. You have a very striking... um a couple sentences about Wellesley. Uh, you say, in his vigor, decisiveness, sense of purpose, and dynamism, along with his high-handedness, impatience, and pride that verged on insolence, Wellesley came close to being a British twin to Napoleon, and one cannot but wonder what he would have accomplished had he been placed in circumstances similar to those of the first consul. <laughs> yes, uh, I remember writing that sentence actually. I'll, bet you, I'll bet you do. It. I was like, pull, pull the pin, roll the grenade in the door, and you know. <laughs> um, yeah. The uh, I think my thinking on 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 Wellesley is shaped by both reading his correspondence, which is widely available, uh, but also um, the great research that was done by scholars such as Edward Ingram and uh, J- uh, John Severn. Um, who really fleshed out Wellesley's role in, in, in developing this uh, imperial British imperial presence in, in, in India. And if we look at his writings and his letters, his memorandums, and he stays in India until 1805, I think you see this in individual who is both very talented, very skilled, but also driven by this ambition and vigor. And um, I, I, can, I, I, I am convinced that uh, Indian history might have been quite different if if a different kind of man was in uh, in charge of British East India Company at this in, in crucial juncture. Uh, so, what, what does he what does he do, and what does he what does the East India Company do, and you know what does little brother do for him in order to further this ambition and uh, this with 
to, to extend the British rule throughout India. Indeed. Um, so Wellesley, as I, as I mentioned, he's in um, he's stuck in um, South Africa when he received the news of the British of the French invasion of uh, uh, um, Egypt, and so he immediately developed this vision of uh, proactive, preemptive measures that um, British had to take uh, in India. And specifically, what he wanted to do is he wanted to go after the local. Uh, you know, Indian uh, rulers um, and uh, give them a choice. Either they would cooperate with British East India Company and deny any uh, access, any presence for the French, or they will be uh, facing consequences. Uh, and we see that happening all, all very quickly. Um, uh, already in, in the fall of 1798, uh, Wellesley uh, goes after the uh, Nizam Ali uh, of Hyderabad, uh, whom he forced to disband uh, the French trained forces, uh, 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 kick out the French officers who were training them, and replace them with a British officer uh, 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 contingent of, of, of sepoys. So effectively, Wellesley forces this ruler to trot the British-drawn line instead of relying on the French. And then next on the list of Wellesley's target was Mysore, uh, the great um, uh, uh, state in, in south of uh, India. And we actually have an, an, a major war, right, uh, called Anglo-Mysore War, in which uh, the Wellesley and the British India Company forces confronted uh, Tipu Sultan, uh, of men who famously had that robotic tiger, right, devouring a <laughs> soldier. Um, Tipu Sultan uh, uh, tried to establish connection with the French. We know that Napoleon tried to uh, also reach out to Tipu Sultan. And the British were more or less aware of these overtures, and hence why Wellesley was uh, just, uh, you know, could justify his actions against Tipu Sultan by arguing that this was done for the British overall security in India. And we, in the Anglo-Mysorean War in uh, 1799, uh, Tipu Sultan was defeated. His capital city of Seringapatam was captured in May, on May 4, and then Tipu himself was killed. But Wilson didn't stop there. Uh, he then uh, pursued an equally vigorous policy towards other Indian states, including Marathas. The Great Maratha Confederation uh, did pose a, a much greater challenge for Wilson to overcome. But nonetheless, um, in the ensuing right, Anglo-Marathan wars, uh, uh, Wilson was able to consolidate power in, in parts of western and southern uh, India. And it is at this time that we see Wellesley um, developing this um, approach that we'll soon enough call indirect or subsidiary right, rule, uh, where the British would uh, offer the rulers uh, a, a subsidiary arrangement, where they will provide them with a, a whole lot of subsidy, a pile of cash or money, in exchange for these rulers uh, to forfeit the foreign policy, so to speak, in the, and give it to to the British to control. So the rulers will still be in charge within their domains, but the British East India Company will, will uh, regulate and, and conduct their foreign policy. And between 1800 and 1805, um, the, uh, Wellesley was very skillful at, at imposing these subsidiary alliances on many of the Indian states, so that by 1805, the, uh, the extent of British control is far greater uh, than it was just seven years earlier when Wellesley showed up uh, in 1798. Well, let's move farther uh, west. So 
the threat of the uh, General Napoleon's uh, invasion of the Middle East uh, also focused uh, Russian eyes upon their south. Um, how did the how did Persia? We never we don't talk enough about Persia in this period. It's as if it doesn't really exist. It's just sort of a blank spot on the map between uh, the Middle East and uh, India. But uh, how did that focus the Russians upon well the Caucasus and then upon Persia? Um, this is uh, uh, really one of those uh, uh, moments um, the, that, that are decisive for the uh, for the history of Iran. Uh, because Iran, of course, had uh, this glorious past, right? A long ancient civilization that had its ups and downs. And um, it happened so that the one of those ups, uh, the, the era of the Safavid uh, dynasty, uh, came to a, uh, to a crushing halt in 1722 with the collapse of the Safavid power in the, uh, in the wake of the uh, Afghan invasion. And Iran then experiences a period of uh, profound upheaval in the 18th century, uh, that only ends uh, in 1790s with the rise of a new dynasty, the Qajar dynasty, with uh, uh, Muhammad uh, Khan uh, Qajar becoming the first Qajar ruler of, of Iran. Um, now, Aga Muhammad didn't rule long enough. Uh, he died uh, shortly thereafter by 1797. He's gone. But what all this meant was that Iran was at the moment of turmoil. I- I- Iran was not strong enough to defend its positions vis-a-vis uh, these encroaching uh, powers. And here, uh, the Turks are, uh, are playing a role, but it is the Russians that are of our uh, key interest. Um, uh, the, the story here uh, involves my own homeland, uh, Jordan. Um, Georgians had a long history of relationship with Iran. Um, some, some this proto-Georgians, so if you can use this term, have been involved in Xerxes' invasion of Greece back, you know, in what, 2,500 years ago. So there is a long connection to Iran, but there was also a, a long struggle uh, vis-a-vis Iran with Georgians trying to maintain their independence. Uh, and um, this political turmoil in Iran in the 18th century allowed Georgians to assert themselves. And by the second half of the 18th century, Eastern Georgian kingdom is effectively on its own. It's, it's, it's independent. But it also understands that this period of turmoil in Iran will end and Iran will come back with vengeance. And so the Georgians reached out to Russia for help, um, hoping that there will be a military cooperation, military alliance. Well, uh, the invasion of uh, Egypt by by French um, catalyzed in some you know, served as a catalyst in, in some respects because uh, it, it, for the Russians it becomes clear that they are not the only European powers uh, who are in, keenly interested in expanding influence in the Middle East. And hence we see, for example, in uh, 1800, um, the Russian decision to not just simply abide by the treaty of military cooperation that they had with the Georgian kingdom, but rather to outright annex Georgia to Russian Empire, which was done in 1800 by Emperor Paul and then uh, confirmed uh, by his successor, Alexander, in 1801. Of course, for Iran, this is a big problem uh, because from Iranian point of view, uh, Georgia was a part of this uh, sphere of influence, the, the sacred domain of Iran, as it is sometimes referred to in Iranian political rhetoric. Uh, um, and uh, in, 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 the, in their effort to protect themselves, um, the Iranians now were looking for an outside power. Furthermore, 
And I mentioned Wellesley, uh, who was already very active in extending British influence in, in India. Uh, Wellesley and Dundas believe that uh, these, uh, these preemptive efforts should extend beyond Indian subcontinent and include other areas. So alongside events in Mysore, in, in Hyderabad, in, in Marathas and all that, Wellesley and, and Dundas were also involved in sending out delegations to parts of what we now consider Middle East. So we see, for example, in 1798, a British delegation going to uh, Muscat, nowadays Oman. And another delegations are also showing up in Iran, uh, hoping to establish Anglo-Iranian cooperation vis-a-vis French. However, from Iranian point of view, French, are not, uh, French don't pose a threat. It's the Russians who pose the threat. On the other hand, for British, Russians are not a threat. <laughs> it's the French who are the threat. And so you see here is this interesting diplomatic maneuvering where the Iranians want to use the British vis-a-vis Russians, while the, Iranian, uh, while the British want to use the Iranians vis-a-vis the French. Um, this process continues through the early 1800s, and there is a, a turning point in 1806-1807. By this time, Napoleon has already accomplished um, those great victories, Austerlitz, Jena, uh, and uh, he is now facing uh, Russia as his main rival on the continent. And as such, Napoleon conceived this remarkable tripartite alliance, the the triple alliance, the original triple alliance of uh, France, Ottoman Empire, and Iran, the three nations that had Russia as the uh, rival, as an opponent. Uh, And he wanted to create an alliance between these three states. Uh, He was unable to convince the Turks and the Iranians um, because of their both political and religious differences, right, Sunni uh, Ottomans and uh, vis-a-vis Shia uh, Khajars. So he was unable to convince them to join this one alliance, but he developed two separate alliances with them. And the one that he signed with Iran in 1807 it, it was, uh, is known as, uh, as the Treaty of Finkenstein. And under this treaty, Napoleon promises Shah that he will provide him with subsidies and military expertise to train Iranian army for the first time uh, uh, to... Uh, in, in, with the goal of pro- creating an Iranian uh, Western-style force that should be able to fight uh, the Russians on, on more equitable terms and hopefully, from Iranian point of view, recover Caucasus and, and Georgia. Indeed, in 1808, um, a special mission, a military mission, uh, was sent from France to Iran, a mission that was led by General Gardan. And uh, Gardan arrives uh, with a series of uh, with, uh, with dozens of officers uh, to train the uh, Iranian army, um, and they do manage to create this Western-style uh, Nizami Jadid kind of these new-style troops, as they were called, um, uh, troops uh, in, in, within the Iranian army. However, the problem is that uh, at the same time that Napoleon is doing this and he's trying to reach with one hand to Iran. He is also selling out Iranians with the other hand. Because that same year, uh, the year that he signed treaty with Iran at Finkenstein, he also negotiated a separate treaty with Russia at Tilsit in July of 1807, in which he effectively sold Iranians out and recognized Russian claims and control of Caucasus. So he's double dealing here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, Iranians um, received this news later on. Uh, By the time Gardan's mission was already in Iran, uh, Shah Fatali 
of Iran receives the news of, of this arrangement and tells it he's furious. And by 1809, uh, Gardan's mission will be uh, done. Uh, Gardan will be forced to leave. However, Iran still needs uh, a European partner, a Western partner, to deal with the, uh, with the Russian Empire. And that's when the British come back and they offer again an arrangement. Uh, and the arrangement this time was this. Of course, much has changed since 1798 when the first re, uh, overture was made. This time around, uh, Russia and uh, Britain are not allies. In fact, Russia, after Tilsit, is allied to France, and there is a war between Russia and Britain. So British offered help to help Iranians vis-a-vis Russia by providing subsidies, or over 100,000 pounds every, every year, and military training uh, officers who would go in and, and continue what the French has started. So between 1809 and 1812, then, you see this training happening. British pay money, send officers, they train troops. And these British-trained, British-led troops, Iranian troops, are actually fighting against the Russians in 1810, 1811, 1812. All the while, British trying to convince Russians to break their alliance with France and join them in Europe. So it is a rather convoluted picture, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very... It makes Renaissance. It'll look easy to understand. <laughs> um, and that's the that's the Caucasus for you. Uh, so, what was uh, Georgia's position at the end of the, uh, by eighteen fifteen by Waterloo? So, uh, by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, since Napoleon was defeated um, uh, and Russia emerged supreme, uh, Russian rulers were able to um, secure Caucasus. In fact, as part of this uh, Napoleonic. Uh, 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 conflicts, um, uh, Russians were able to secure not only eastern Georgia, which, as I mentioned, they did in 1801, but extend their power to western part as well. And then, under the leadership of this remarkable uh, guy, uh, not particularly likable, but uh, um, uh, a Georgian by the name of uh, Paul Tsitsianov, originally Tsitsishvili, uh, you know, a clearly Georgian name. Uh, well, Tsitsianov was one of those individuals who uh, were uh, more Catholic than Pope, so to speak. Uh, he was Georgian, but he was uh, a Russian imperialist uh, who believed that this entire region of Caucasus needs to be under Russian control. And um, he uh, campaigned very actively and very vigorously uh, so that by the, by the time he was killed in 1806, much of southeastern Caucasus, what is today Azerbaijan, was also incorporated into the Russian domain, and that was the reality uh, in 18 uh, by the end of the Napoleonic Wars when Iran was defeated by Russian forces uh, and forced to admit Russian control of this region. Now, the British played an interesting role in all of this. As I mentioned, in 1809, they made a deal with Iran, providing money and military training uh, to contain Russian expansion. However, as many of your listeners know, uh, Napoleon... Uh, and uh, in, uh, broke alliance with Russia in 1812. Then he invaded Russia. There was a that's infamous campaign. Uh, and that campaign, of course, allowed Britain to establish a new alliance with Russia in 1813, the, the uh, Sixth Coalition. Well, the creation of that coalition in Europe meant that Iran was now expedient. It it's no longer had any relevance to the British. And indeed, in 1813, the British stopped uh, providing support uh, there was no need for uh, for uh, training uh, Iranian troops vis-à-vis Russians anymore, and we see a series of defeats that Iranians suffer at the hands of 
uh, of the Russians in, in 1812, 1813, which ultimately forced Iran to admit that Caucasus is lost. So moving farther west, uh, the Ottoman Empire, which is in some ways, as you make clear in your chapter on this, takes advantage of these um, decades of war in order to have a sort of breathing space in which for like one point in its history, it's not really fighting anyone, except that actually it's fighting Russia part of this time. Um, But how does the Ottoman Empire both benefit from the Napoleonic Wars and also um, how does the, how do the Napoleonic Wars also set them up for future failure? Um, the, the Ottoman Empire at this time is tr- is truly an empire besieged, and I'm borrowing here a, a famous expression by my, my dear colleague uh, Virginia Oksan, an esteemed uh, Ottomanist. And it is an empire besieged because of numerous issues it had to deal both inside and outside. Um, now, Ottoman Empire uh, is, a mu- uh, is a multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic, multi-religious uh, uh, entity. And, uh, and multi-state. So, <laughs> I mean, since Tripoli and Algiers are technically part of the, uh, of the Ottoman Empire, but Egypt, uh, indeed, yeah, indeed. so. Uh, and, and the reason why this is important is that um, it never truly developed this national identity. So unlike uh, even Britain, right, where you can e- appeal to this notion of you know, John Bull and the Britishness, uh, as much as it may, may rub the Scots the wrong way or the Irish, there is certain these notions, right? Or in France, right, uh, during the French Revolution, we see the rise of this idea of a, na- a nation. Well, the Ottomans were never able to develop this national identity. and Instead, they struggled to contain the forces that were trying to rip the Ottoman Empire along those linguistic, religious, and ethnic lines. Um, but on the good news is that uh, when the French Revolutionary Wars began in 1792, Europe's attention were devoted almost entirely on these conflicts. And hence, uh, the Ottomans had a breathing space. Um, they, they ended uh, a, a Russo- Austrian-Ottoman War, uh, just before that, in 1791-92, they they managed to end the wars with Austria and Russia on a rather disadvantageous terms, but nonetheless. And then from 1792, we have a period of about 14 years, so until 1806, when Ottomans have a breathing space to examine what are the issues, underlying problems that uh, have hampered the Ottomans in their relationship with the Western powers. It, it certainly helps that they have a remarkable guy in, in, in on the throne, a, a man by the name of Selim, Selim III. He came to power in 1789, just as the French Revolution um, uh, erupted in France. Uh, Selim was uh, um, Francophile, if we can use that term, because he actually was fascinated with Europe, European culture, especially French culture. He corresponded with uh, King Louis XVI. Uh, he was interested in uh, European institutions, European practices. And uh, one of the effects that ha- this had was that during this peaceful interval from 1792 forward, Selim became convinced that Ottoman state and military had to modernize that they have to embrace some of the European uh, innovations in order to be able to compete both with Western powers and more crucial, or equally important was to make sure that the uh, sultan's authority, the centralization of the political power within the empire continued unchallenged. 
And so during this period, therefore, he introduces two core reforms. Uh, they are interrelated uh, 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 reforms. The, the first one is the Nizami Jadid um, reform, the new order, so-called, the new order troops that uh, the Ottoman um, government decided to form. Uh, and this was the uh, a military reform designed to train uh, Ottoman troops in Western style. So Western style discipline, Western style clothing, Western style and, uh, equipment. Um, they started uh, small. Um, they started in a, in a place called Levant in, in 1795 with a few thousand men and then gradually expanded the system so that by 1806 you have uh, about 24,000 uh, new order, these Nizami Jadid uh, troops trained. And they were well-trained. They were well-led. Uh, here we see the influence of the French. Uh, historically, French had a close relationship with the Ottoman Empire, right? Uh, um, I will remind your listeners about the collaboration or cooperation that the France had with the Ottomans back in uh, 17, uh, 16th century. On the front, Seems like, yeah, well, Francis. Yeah. Remember the Ottoman fleet? Uh, scandalously, right? Spending the winter in, in, in Marseille <laughs> uh, as, as they were fighting against the fellow, uh, uh, against the you know, Christian states of Spain and, and the whole Roman Empire. But then the later, so the France has this connection to uh, to the Ottomans. And in fact, during these reforms, we see French military manuals uh, translated into uh, Ottoman, uh, French uh, instructors and trainers brought to train uh, Ottoman troops. And so from the outside point of view, whether it's Russian or British, there is a fear of naturally that that will create the uh, a, a presence, a French presence, and a French influence. Um, the second important reform that uh, went along with this is the creation of a new um, tax collection, so to speak, or the financial power um, to go along with the military uh, reform. Uh, it's called Iradi Jadid Hazinasi. And that is called, uh, that, that was exactly a new revenue system uh, that uh, was under greater control of the Sultan um, and uh, involved um, levying new taxes on, on consumer goods, uh, straightening up. Uh, the bureaucratic uh, hurdles. But both of these reforms, whether we talk about Nizami Jadid or Iradi Jadid reforms, they threatened um, traditional established uh, interests. If you are one of the Ayans, right, one of the notables in the Ottoman Empire, and you live in places like Libya that you mentioned or the Balkan Peninsula, and here you hear about the Sultan. Uh, producing a more efficient military force and then trying to create a more efficient financial system. That is a threat to you because it, it creates a more intrusive central government. Mm -hmm. um, and, and from religious point of view, and we see here the ulamas, the religious leaders, um, opposing these reforms because they were brought in as foreign notions, right? These are European practices brought uh, within Islamic Reality, and it's no surprise uh, uh, that the ulamas condemned them as foreign practices that were incompatible with Islam. And the Sultan, if you're Salim, you have a choice. You either go along with this opposition and say, yes, you're right, these reforms are incompatible with our way of life, or you argue that, no, we have to change, we have to evolve uh, and, and bring about these reforms. Uh, but that in, in inherently causes conflict. Uh, tensions, ultimately conflict, and unfortunately for Salim, he will lose in this conflict. In 1808, 1807, 1808, he will face this powerful revolt, 
led by traditional interests, the Janissaries, Baulamas, the Ayans, uh, he will be overthrown and ultimately killed. Hmm. And what happens in between then, between the um, between his overthrow and the end of the Napoleonic Wars? The year 1808 is the year of three sultans in, in the Ottoman Empire, a year of, of tremendous upheaval. Uh, here we see Ottomans attacked by the Russian uh, Empire. Starting in 1806, there is a war, but it was a dormant war um, until 18, um, really after 1808, because Russians uh, are preoccupied with the struggle with Napoleonic France, right? 1806, 1807, there's some years of major conflict between Russia and France. But as I mentioned, at Tilsit, uh, Russians will be able to sign a treaty with Napoleon and uh, have an alliance. And part of this uh, uh, arrangement was Napoleon agreeing to give uh, Russians a free hand or, or freer hand in the Balkan, in the Ottoman affairs. And so we see this uh, Russo-Turkish war reaching, you know, starting a new, uh, a new with, a, with a great intensity um, after 1808. So Ottomans are facing uh, this dilemma of containing uh, the uh, uh, Russian uh, aggression. Furthermore, because the Salt of this uh, Salim had this uneasy kind of alliance with France, I wouldn't say it's a formal alliance, but there is this pro uh, pro French sentiment certainly present in 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 the Ottoman Empire. Ottomans were also targeted by the British. In 1807, uh, there was an expedition uh, led by Admiral Duckworth, whose goal it was to force the Dardanelles Strait sail up the strait into the Sea of Marmara and capture Constantinople, right? The move that uh, will be familiar to anyone uh, with the passing knowledge of World War I and the disastrous Gallipoli expedition that will take place later on. So the British did try it. And they came very close in 1807 to, uh, to pulling it off, unfortunately for them, the changing winds and the ability of the French and the Ottomans in Constantinople uh, uh, frustrated their design. So that expedition was a failure, but nonetheless, it, it's a British attack on the Ottoman. Ottoman. So the relationship between these two states will be uh, quite tense. Uh, and uh, the, the, these outside threats, plus the uprising in Constantinople, encouraged the centrifugal forces on the periphery. And we see regions uh, of the Ottoman Empire trying to break away. This is especially true in the Balkan Peninsula, with the rise of these powerful lords in places like um, uh, Albania, right, with the Ali Pasha of Janina, or uh, places like today's uh, Serbia, with the, with the, with the local uh, lords defying the authority of the sultan. It's worth it's worth highlighting then that the same sort of thing that's happening in uh, the Caucasus, this sort of this centrifugal force that's starting to strip away the peripheries from old empires, the same thing sort of thing is happening to the Ottomans, and the same thing sort of thing will happen to the Spaniards in the Americas. We've got sort of the same processes uh, occur in very different regions of the world because of the Napoleonic Wars. Indeed, it creates these conditions, right? They are. Uh, for uh, elites like that, like uh, at Vidin, there is mm-hmm. a, 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 a powerful governor by the name of Pasfanoglu Osman Pasha, who takes advantage of the reality that the central government in Constantinople, the Sultan, is besieged in with these problems. The Russians, British, French, all trying to ma- manipulate them uh, to assert 
or, or, or try to assert the greater share of control of the, in, in the Balkan Peninsula. And you see the similar problems happening um, in other areas. Think about Ahmed Jezar Pasha, who is usually mentioned in Napoleonic Wars in the context of Napoleon's unsuccessful siege of Accra mm-hmm. um, in 1799. But uh, Ahmed Jezar Pasha stayed in Syria after Napoleon was gone. And he effectively ruled supreme in Syria, defying Sultan. Or, and I have to plug my, my Georgians here, uh, <laughs> Suleiman Pasha the Great, a Georgian Mamluk, who presided over a dynasty of Mamluks who ruled in, in, in Iraq through this period, all, all the way to 1830, with little care for what the Sultan uh, told him to do. Uh, so that's the one of the legacies of the Napoleonic Wars, is that by challenging the central authority of the Ottoman Empire, by inflicting defeats, by sapping resources, uh, the Napoleonic Wars facilitated the centrifugal forces and, and pushed them in different direction. And at the same time, these Napoleonic Wars forced this region to embrace practices, certain practices of the West that uh, were believed to be important to, to, uh, to consolidating power. And, and here... I refer primarily to military reforms, to westernizing uh, administrative and military structures. We see that in Egypt with the rise of Mehmed Ali after Napoleon and his French are gone. This uh, uh, Ottoman commander whom Sultan sent to bring Egypt under the Sultan's authority, in fact, does the very opposite. He takes control of Egypt and then ignores the Sultan and sets himself up as the semi-independent ruler who brings westernizing military and administrative reforms that empower Egypt to such a degree that by 1830s, as we all uh, know, Egypt is capable of fighting the Ottoman empires, not just on equals, but actually defeating them, right? Think about the Ottoman-Egyptian wars of of late 1830s. Um, Similar developments then take place in in Iraq, although not to to such a a success, and certainly the Nizam-i-Jadid reforms that I mentioned in the Ottoman Empire. And that's where the legacy, I think, is uh, of the Ottoman uh, of the Napoleonic Wars in the in Ottoman world uh, is bringing this Westernizing impetus and then uh, causing a reaction to it, a reaction that, in my mind, we're still dealing with this mm-hmm. struggle between traditional uh, uh, li- uh, traditional values w- versus Westernized or the m- m- modern values, if we can use that expression. Mm-hmm. Let's um, let's jump across the Atlantic to Haiti, uh, whose struggle begins with the f- be- is is uh, occurs with the French Revolution, and then sort of ends before Napoleon is off the throne. But can we briefly talk about uh, Haiti and how its how its struggle and history is related to the Napoleonic Wars? Haiti is uh, one of those topics that uh, both. Uh, um, really challenging to discuss in the, in the context of what the French Revolution promised and what it actually delivered. Yeah. Um, we know that uh, by, by, by the late 18th century, especially after the Seven Years' War, uh, the, the French lost much of their presence in, in the Western Hemisphere um, as a result of, of, of defeats and, and, and the po- policy decisions. So that by the time the po- uh, French Revolution started, uh, the French uh, don't even have control of Louisiana, right? It's in the hands of the Spanish. Uh, and it is Saint-Domingue, future Haiti, that is their main colony, a very prosperous colony, and 
French were certainly dependent on the colonial trade to a great degree with, with Saint-Domingue. Um, but then the French Revolution began. And one of the first things, as we know from the French Revolution, was the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, which uh, the very first article of it proclaimed that men are born and remain free and equal in their rights. Of course, uh, the general nature of such a statement uh, posed a problem in areas such as uh, Caribbean and San Domingo in particular, because um, slaves represented here a vast majority of the population. Um, in fact, in San, San Domingo, uh, um, slaves represented of 89% of the colony's population. So um, for, the, for this population, naturally a promise, such as Declaration of Rights of Men and Citizen, with its promise of free, freedom and equality for all men, the, the way it was written, um, certainly encouraged um, uh, assertion of their rights and freedoms, uh, especially on the part of the freed people of color, the Jeanne de Colo. Um, and we see in 1790 uh, already disturbances uh, since uh, extending the full coverage of the Declaration of the Rights of Men and the Citizen to the people of color would have meant end of slavery uh, with, the, with the, you know, accompanying massive loss of uh, e economic um, and financial right um, uh, investments that's from the plantation owners' point of view they had made, and so the plantation owners successfully petitioned the French government not to extend uh, um, emancipation to uh, the uh, colonies. Uh, hence, why in 1791 we have an uprising in Saint Domingue, uh, an uprising that will um, grow in intensity uh, by. 1799, when Napoleon came to power, it is already raging on uh, much of the island. In fact, has spread to neighboring islands such as uh, Saint, Lu Saint Lucia, Guadeloupe. Um, uh, um, but Saint Domingue is, is the core of this activity. When Napoleon came to power, um, here is one of those uh, black stains, I think, on his reputation is um, he intended to not just reclaim the control of the French colonies. But he did have intention of reasserting that colonial rule, and, and especially based on, on slavery. Um, what, why do you think? I mean, what, what was that to him? I mean, uh, I've seen various arguments about this. Um, what's, what's your take on, on why did Napoleon want to reimpose the French Empire in the Caribbean as it had been? Napoleon does have a, you know, very, in that sense, a rather conservative mindset when it comes we, we, I mean, we, uh, we can call him a, a racist in that view and in a, within an 18th century kind of uh, perception of it uh, because he did he does believe uh, in in the inferiority of the of the um, people of color um, it, uh, he's surrounded by uh, many minutes you know but he's surrounded by people uh, especially the minister of colonies and the minister of the navy who represent the colonial plantation interests. Um, so in that sense, even the advice that he's receiving from people like Decret and, and others would have been um, more representative of the colonial plantation owner interests rather than uh, necessarily the other side, so the other side represented for by individuals like Toussaint Louverture. Now, one of the mistakes I think Toussaint Louverture um, has, has made is 
by a certain greater independence for Saint-Domingue. And I've seen letters that Napoleon has written where that assertion uh, was for him a, a deal breaker. Uh, the, the fact that uh, Saint-Domingue would not be following the line that the central government in Paris would set. Uh, because initially, Napoleon was um, actually uh, kind of uh, embracing this issue of, of emancipation. I think one of the things he says, for example, is he, assure, he issues a declaration in which he assures uh, the citizens, uh, that phrase is interesting, the citizens of Saint-Domingue, of, quote, the sacred principles of liberty and equality of the blacks will never be attacked or modified. So he, he does that. In fact, he sends special flags uh, for the National Guard in, in Saint-Domingue uh, uh, with instructions uh, to be written on them. Uh, Brave blacks, remember that only the French people recognize your liberty and equality. Hmm. However, by 1801, that changes. And here, I think, it, it, two... Uh, two Factors play a role. One is the fact that he was surrounded by these more conservative-minded advisors, more representative of plantation owner interests. And second, and if you ask me, that is even more uh, important, is his belief that if his belief that, uh, that Saint-Domingue, as it was led by Louverture, this governor general for life, who just published the constitution, uh, that Louverture was not intending to be submissive to the French authority. Uh, um, Napoleon actually later on mentions that uh, Louverture's proclamation of himself as a governor general for life um, marked, uh, this is a quote, a moment where there was no point deliberating anymore. Uh, and in 1802, then, right, Napoleon makes a decision to send um, this expedition to reclaim um, Saint-Domingue, which turned out to be a disaster. It was a disaster at, after it had captured Louverture and uh, sent him off to prison to die in prison in the Pyrenees. Um, yeah, Louverture is a tragic, tragic figure in, in this sense. Um, you know, he, he ends these, you know, in the words of William Wordsworth, right, the most unhappy man of men mm. uh, in, in this godforsaken place in, in, in <laughs> Fort Joux in, in France where he dies in solitary confinement. Yeah. Um, so the result is, um, this is uh, one of great, Napoleon's great defeats, really, is that uh, Haiti manages to establish its its independence. Uh, and it, in doing so, it's the second independent republic in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, it's the only uh, black uh, republic um, for centuries to come, or for certainly decades, centuries to come. Uh, and uh, it's the first of then many others in the Western Hemisphere. So could you tick that off? I and mean, this had been a, people had been attempting to do that since the beginning of, since 1793, if not before. I'm thinking of Francisco Miranda, who's, um, who is a, he's actually a, a, a general in the French Revolutionary Armies, as well as conspiring with, of all people, Alexander Hamilton to, crea- <laughs> to create, to create a free Venezuela. Um, You know, this is a guy who's been everywhere and met everybody. Um, (laughs) And eventually uh, it takes. Indeed. Um, Before I do so, let me mention one thing about the Saint-Domingue and the importance of the French defeat there. The defeat here is one of the core reasons why Napoleon uh, effectively uh, uh, gives up on building the colonial empire in, in the Western Hemisphere and then makes a decision to sell Louisiana to United States, which is of tremendous consequence 
to um, our own history, mm-hmm. bo- uh, both in terms of uh, the territorial acquisition, right, the, the, the territory we have acquired, but also internal uh, deliberations on the nature of the federal government and the mm-hmm. extent to which right, presidents can make or not make decisions. So that's a very important um, uh, narrative in, in itself. That's interesting. I mean, I, I was reading not long ago one of Jefferson's letters where, uh, to him, one of the great advantages of, of Louisiana Purchase is to avoid a balance of power situation in North America. Exactly. Uh, it's to, it's it's it, very interesting how, how he has a very sophisticated idea of this. He doesn't want to replicate the European situation perfectly in in North America. There has to be a hegemon. It has to be the United States. Otherwise, we'll end up being just like Europe. That's, be. That, that's right. And, and then you see that. And then exactly, Napoleon's decision, right, in the wake of the defeat, he realizes there is no way he can retain the foothold in Louisiana. So that has a profound repercussions. Um, speaking of Miranda, right, or to, to give uh, uh, his full name, Sebastian Francisco de Miranda y Rodriguez de Espinoza, right there. Um, he was a, a charismatic, very interesting um, adventurer, I think that will be a, a proper way to describe him, because for decades, so I think two decades, if not more, he has been trying and successfully to incite this revolution in South um, um, America. Uh, approaching Americans, French, British, uh, with the hope of securing their support. Um, now, because Napoleon's hands was, were tied, um, you know, and clearly was not as, as interested in, in provoking any uprisings in, in Spanish-controlled territories, since Spain was at this time, in you know, 1800 all the way to 1808, allied to France. Um, well, Miranda, realizing this, he, of course, secured informal support from the British, and the very opposite was true for the British. Be- because Spain was allied with Napoleon, uh, and because the Napoleon was able to rely on the Spanish silver, not to mention the Spanish fleets, to conduct his policies, um, the British were willing to support Miranda. And so we see in 1805, for example, an informal British support for invasion of Venezuela, uh, or the captains, captaincy general of Venezuela. Um, uh, the invasion d- did take place in, in spring, in April, late April of 1805, but unfortunately Miranda was not as prepared uh, for the opposition he was about to meet. He certainly faced a, a, a capable opponent, uh, the Guevara Vasconcelos, the captain general of Venezuela, and Miranda's invasion uh, came to uh, be defeated uh, sure, shortly after it uh, landed. Um, he tried to regroup, uh, but ultimately um, his efforts were unsuccessful. Now, what is more interesting to me is not as much of Miranda's uh, uh, in, in attempts, but it is the British approach, the British uh, support for uh, any efforts to destabilize uh, Latin America. Miranda is just one gear in, in this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a much bigger gear if, uh, is uh, uh, the expedition that Admiral Popham um, launched in 1806, so um, shortly after Miranda's. Um, as part of this struggle against Napoleonic France, uh, the British had to ensure the control of these uh, naval lanes. Now, uh, so oftentimes we have this misconception that uh, with the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, right in October of 1805, the British secured the control, control of the seas, and the French fleet that was at the bottom of the ocean, and that was it. Uh, it no, uh, in fact, uh, as my good friend uh, Professor Kenneth Johnson 
has shown in his own research, in his writing this, what I'm sure will be his magna opus on the Napoleon's use of sea, a masterful study. Well, in that study, he shows that uh, the French Navy uh, recovered after Trafalgar disaster and continued to conduct uh, operations. And I tried to uh, give some uh, coverage to it in uh, to the British uh, to, the, to the French, sorry, uh, naval operations in 1806, 1807, 1808. So there is still this continued threat. And to neutralize it, especially uh, British are concerned about continued threat that French might pose to Indian trade, uh, the decision was made to send an expedition to South, um, uh, uh, South Africa. Right? If you are uh, sailing from Europe to India, then you have to pass by South Africa, and that will be a core, a, a strategically important position to hold. And so indeed, Admiral Popham's expedition uh, invaded South uh, Africa in the start of 1806 and successfully captured it. What happens next is 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 interesting. Now, there's a debate whether this was sanctioned or not sanctioned by the British government. Popham certainly argued that he had a conversation with Prime Minister uh, William Pitt, and Pitt uh, was kind of okay with it. <laughs> now, later, British government uh, Pitt died in early 1806. But yeah, by the time by the time Popham was on court martial, Pitt was dead. So that was, right. <laughs> it was easy to appeal to conversations with a dead man. <laughs> Mm. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the successor government certainly denied that they had uh, approved this. Uh, but the reality was that after the invasion of South Africa, uh, British fleet um, under Popham sailed to uh, South America. And the goal here was... To- I mean, we have to, uh, just to emphasize that, they're in the Cape of Good Hope. They've captured the Dutch colony of, of the Cape Colony. And Popham, uh, seemingly on his own hook, uh Scrapes together his ships, uh, loads a bunch of uh, army uh, soldiers on board, and sails across the South Atlantic to take Buenos Aires. That's right. Uh, which I mean, <laughs> it's it's a it's a real snap play. Uh, it's really it's really it's a it's an amazing sort of uh, you know audible. Uh, well, that's where maybe Popham is uh, you know that credence is giving to his claim. Hey, this was already pre greed, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on a whim. Um, well, they arrive in April of 1806. Uh, they reach Rio de la Plata, right, modern-day Argentina. And one of the uh, reasons why they want to uh, effectively uh, attack this position is because of that long-standing Spanish policy um, of restricting trade, colonial trade, right? In order to trade with colonies, uh, Spain uh, had set up the House of Trade in the great city of Seville, and had it under tight control so that no other European nation or even the colonists could conduct trade directly or independently. It had to go through Spain. And we've seen, right, British efforts to challenge the system in earlier years. Uh, probably the most famous case would be the War of Captain Jenkins's Ear, right? <laughs> there was a reason why those ears were, or the ear was cut off from Captain Jenkins. Uh, he was defying this policy. Well, Popham arrived in, in spring of 1806. Uh, by the way, he, he made a brief stop at the small island of St. Helena <laughs> <laughs> on the way there. Um, and um, uh, he is accompanied by uh, a, a force, as you mentioned, by, led by William Beresford. Uh, Beresford, a, a capable general, but he was dealt a really bad hand here. Um, the British didn't make any preparations for this expedition beforehand, so they, they came... Um, really swinging in that sense mm-hmm. uh, because they were not they were not sure on how to actually land their troops they realized for example that the navy 
upon arriving there that the Navy couldn't get close enough uh, to provide cover uh, for the landing forces. Um, the, the the plan was poorly uh, drafted. And so even though Beresford uh, landed with about 1,500 men, even though he was able to uh, capture Buenos Aires, uh, he quickly faced a counterattack by the local uh, colonial Spanish forces. Uh, uh, British were defeated, and Beresford was uh, forced to surrender, uh, a stain on his uh, otherwise glorious uh, career. Uh, now, Ber- uh, Popham sent a message uh, after the first initial success, after Buenos Aires was captured, he sent a message back to London. And uh, here we see uh, this euphoria, I think, in, um, in, in, in the British, both commercial uh, circles, this prospect of unrestricted trade, of pouring both British manufactured goods onto the uh, South American continent, and of course, getting hand uh, or access to local resources. That was quite encouraging. So there was a lot of speculation uh, done. Um, but um, for me, an interesting thing is is uh, the vision that um, that the gov- that this expedition revealed among some members of the British of British government. Uh, because uh, when the first news arrived, the British mem- some members of the British government entertained grandiose schemes of of uh, of partitioning Spanish Empire. And I think the most famous of this is the one that was drafted and shown to Wellesley, and I discussed it in my book. It's staggering in its scope and, and conception. The goal was to uh, launch a double-pronged attack on the Spanish colonies with Wellesley uh, taking an expedition, sailing uh, it uh, to South Africa, uh, picking up troops there, then sailing to India, picking up troops there, then cro- uh, sailing to Philippines, uh, dislodging the... Uh, Spanish forces there. But wait, there's more. (laughs) There's more, exactly. (laughs) Then crossing entire Pacific Ocean, arriving uh, on the western side, Pacific coastline of Mexico, just as a similar expedition was sailing from England to reach Mexico on the Caribbean side. And we'll wait. Remember Popham's expeditions in Buenos Aires? They would also make an excursion from the south. Just it hurts my mind just to think about the, the scale and, and coordination of it. Uh, fortunately for the British Wellesley, look at it and quickly realize it was nonsense. But it is the the fact that the British, uh, the senior members of the British government even entertained that is, is quite interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And all this, all this disappears in 1808 when Napoleon turns against Spain and Spain suddenly turns to its seemingly eternal enemy. Indeed. Um, um, 1808, in the spring of 1808, Napoleon makes uh, what I'm arguing in the book one of his most fateful uh, mistakes, miscalculations, uh, a decision to take over Spain and he does in a rather roguish uh, in a way, right? Uh, Paul Schroeder, I think, has this uh, uh, wonderful phrase when he compares uh, Napoleon to uh, a mafioso uh, and, and, and practicing and more like uh, acting as a couple uh, <laughs> rather than um, uh, rather than a political leader. I mean, what he did to the Bourbon family, uh, the Spanish Bourbon family in, in Bayonne. Um, 
But the Spanish, uh, the French takeover of Spain uh, uh, has enormous, enormous consequences for Latin America. Uh, to start with, um, it, it forced the British to reevaluate their own approach. And instead of trying to invade and partition and, and um, essentially uh, secure a foothold, we see actually re-evaluation of that policy, and especially in 1809, the British increasingly positioned themselves as the protectors and guardians of the Spanish, uh, of the Spanish authority, um, so which is quite interesting to me. Um, but it is in the colonies that the French invasion of Spain, of Spain has most pronounced effect. When the news arrived of the downfall of the Bourbon monarchy and the rise of the Napoleonic dynasty in Spain, the colonial elites had to make a choice. Either they stayed with the Bourbons and maintained the Bourbon uh, colonial rule, or they rejected it and embraced Napoleonic government, and Napoleon did send emissaries uh, urging them to do so. Or, a third option, to say no to either of this, neither Bourbons nor Napoleon, and seek a third way, a, a way of independence. And it is this combination of these three options that will from now on shape this colonial politics with emergence of a group of patriots who want that third way, who don't want to, be, to have anything in common with the, the Spanish monarchy or colonial rule and want their independence. Uh, this vision of an independent uh, uh, South America is reinforced by the realities of the uh, in Rio de la Plata, uh, where the local colonial forces were able to defeat Britain, uh, one of the great, right, if not the greatest European power of this time. So if we can take on British and defeat them not just once, there is a second invasion of Rio de la Plata that fares equally badly. Mm -hmm. Well, if we can defeat them twice, why do we even have to listen to the uh, Spanish Bourbon power? So that's one option, and we see the rise of these patriots who tend to be liberal-minded, who tend to subscribe to the ideas of French Revolution, although the first two years right, of revolution, the, the more moderate stages rather than the radical parts. Um, but uh, on the other side, they are facing uh, the, the opposition uh, of the more traditionally, more conservative-minded uh, uh, populace who wants to stay loyal to the imperial uh, or the Spanish rule. And it is the story of these two groups figuring out what to do, which way to go, that will consume the energies, the resources, and hundreds of thousands of lives in Latin America from 1808 until the conclusion of these wars of Spanish colonial, uh, Spanish, uh, Latin American independence in 1825. Hmm. Um, so we're way over an hour now. So I, I should ask you some, uh, some, some questions to sort of start tying things together. What do you think is the most overlooked legacy of this great war? Uh, and you use the term great war throughout the book. Um, that's what contemporaries after it had after they had experienced it, it, that was the, that was the obvious thing for them to call it. And anyone who reads the book is going to agree. It was certainly the first great war. <laughs> um, what do you think is the most overlooked of its legacies of its many legacies? I think one of the problems I see, and the reason I wanted to write this book, is the the reality of Napoleonic historiography, or the general historiography of this period. And in that, historians, uh, and I'm included in this, we tend to you know work in our own gardens, so to speak. Right? We have our place, 
we planned our things and we toil and, and, and enjoy doing it within our little area. Uh, and oftentimes we do so uh, um, by overlooking what is happening in neighboring gardens. Mm-hmm. So Napoleon, the traditional narrative of Napoleonic Wars, and again, you can pick up any general histories of Napoleonic Wars or any biographies of Napoleon, or uh, they tend to be Eurocentric. And they ignore the, the colossal scale of the war and the impact, which I'm convinced is more pronounced outside than inside Europe. Uh, at, at the end of the day, Napoleon is defeated and his empire is erased from a map of Europe, but the Spanish empire never recovered. Mm-hmm. The Ottoman empire struggled to recover and it certainly was unable to reclaim territories in Egypt or, or, or elsewhere. Um, and so one of the things that I wanted to convey in this book is that we need to uh, adopt a more wholesome picture of it. There is a lot of research done on Latin American wars of independence, but that research does not overlap with Napoleonic research. So there is this separation. Same applies for uh, the Middle Eastern history. So there is a lot of work that is done on the history of the Ottoman Empire during this period. But what I wanted to do is to show how connected those developments are with the Ottoman Empire and Iran to directly to your Napoleonic wars. And so I think that's where I see this book fulfilling is this notion that history is a much, much larger and more wholesome enterprise than simply looking at it in, in one uh, narrow way. Mm-hmm. And another, um, I think, legacy is this issue, especially outside the uh, outside Europe, it, it, it is present in Europe, but especially outside Europe, of, of modernity or the modernization or the, the notion of change vis-a-vis keeping things as they are. It, it's not only in Iran, it's not only on the Ottoman Empire that we see the, the conflict between traditional values and this, uh, these revolutionary ideals or the, between the needs for modernization and the desire to keep things old way. It, we see that in Latin America, we see it in India, we see it in, uh, in, in, in other parts as well. And I think that's the legacy of Napoleonic Wars because of its scale and intensity, because of the change that it unleashed. It, it forced people to choose. And, and part of that you know, choice um, is, was also tension and conflict. And the rest of the 19th century then it, it deals with that. Um, um, and f- finally, um, I think one, 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 you know, the one point that I wanted to, to make is this emergence of interconnected um, international system um, whether it's economic or, or, or political, that we see in the wake of Napoleonic Wars. Um, the Congress of Vienna, of course, is a crucial element in this, but also this emergence of the, the imperial system that gradually will connect parts of the world into one imperial right, international system that will be uh, following a specific set of rules and specific sets of standards and, 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 and expectations. Mm. So you've been, I'm right that you've been working on this for 10 years. Obviously, you've been thinking about this since at least when you showed up in Tallahassee, uh, which was longer ago than, longer than 10 years ago. Um, what was the hardest part to write? Um, I think the, uh, the scale and the volume of, of, of this material to, to be, um, to, to be analyzed and, and just to process the thing. Um, to what, what I try to do is I try to cast a broad net um, and consult literature in, in 
languages other than French or, or, or English, since that's the, essentially the standards. Um, so I tried to consult the Russian and Georgian and Ottoman and Swedish and Spanish uh, to bring uh, their sites and, and to give a proper um, a perspective on, on those non-French, non-British sites. And that certainly consumed a lot of material, a lot of time, and and, and the travel uh, to do so. As enjoyable as it, as it is, it is also quite um, uh, taxing, uh, especially spending um, time in, in the archives and going through um, hundreds and hundreds of documents only to find maybe a handful that will ultimately right, uh, be yeah. useful enough. Uh, yeah, there must have been some bad five o'clocks in the afternoon after you left the archives, were you? Because <laughs> I see, I mean, looking at the list of archives on page 834, Paris, France, okay, Madrid, Spain, Seville, Valladolid, uh, Madrid, Moscow, Paris, Brit London, Vienna, Edinburgh, Stockholm, Moscow again, Paris again, and finally Cube, National Archives. Um, and I'm, there probably were a couple more that didn't make it into that. Um, yeah, I'm not complaining about travel. No, I know, but, but that it's still, <laughs> when, you're far, when you're far away from home and the family, and it's 5 o'clock, and you're wondering, what did I just waste this last day on? Uh, I, I, I have a hard drive full of uh, tens of thousands of photos <laughs> in these archives, and um, I do hope that there will be some use for them on <laughs> a project down the road. Yeah. So the, just the vo the volume of stuff that you're looking at, that must that must have caused you. I mean, you must have had a year gone by and wondering if I'm ever going to get to the end of this. I have to thank my um, Oxford team here, uh, especially my editor Tim uh, Timothy Bent, because when they first approached me, um, they they said, "Okay, how long it will take you?" And in my youthful ignorance, or uh, <laughs> I told them, uh, "Give me three years." <laughs> 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 uh, so, uh, and uh, three turned into four and five and six and they've been very patient uh -huh. and, uh, they were also extremely professional in the sense that uh, the book um, turned out to be uh, three times so almost three times longer than the one that they commissioned i hope so i mean i hope it's not shorter yeah they were willing to work with it and then uh, i'm very grateful to them for that um so what did you what did you change your mind about in the course of writing this book? What's um, the biggest yeah. thing? I'm sure you, I, I'm sure you changed your mind about many things, uh, but um, well, there must be one thing that you said. Gosh, I didn't used to believe this, but now I do. And what's um, the most remarkable example of that? I think um, um, one of the things, and again, it, it might be the influence of Napoleonic legend, or so. I think uh, one of the things I reassessed is the the, um, the figure of Napoleon himself, and I try to mention that in my preface, where oftentimes we have a, a, a heroic vision or mythologized vision of Napoleon with legend, and legend is very strong to the present day. And even though there have been many efforts done to to write chip at, at it, it, it's still there. And and I, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Napoleon, but uh, while working on this book, um, you know, I'm, 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 I, 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 would, I thought I was Francophile in that sense, and I think I still am, but I, it forced me to reevaluate many of the policies that Napoleon's pursued that before that, I think I would have been more uh, supportive of. And then it includes especially the, the, I have a chapter, I think my favorite chapter in this book is the Grand Empire, mm. where I, I explore the nature of, of French 
imperial rule uh, in in Europe, and and there are many elements that for you know in there that I, I think reflect a changed opinion that I have. Uh, um, and some of it is the things that I found in the archives. Some of it is with discussions of my co- with my colleagues, and I've, that I've been beneficiary of, of tremendous generosity on the part of my my friends uh, who've been working on various aspects of it. Uh, and that forced me to recast Napoleon as a different figure. I still believed um, that um, that Europe might have, and again, as a controversial, might be a point that Napoleon might, uh, Europe might have benefited from. Uh, from French victory, of course. <laughs> That's of course this um, in a what if scenario that is you know counterfactual. But uh, I think the the efficiency, the modernization that Napoleon he didn't practice it everywhere, but he certainly practiced it in many in many places. As painful as it was, I think uh, in long term would have benefited Europe, and certainly Napoleon for. All the different transgressions that he had committed, I think, was a more liberal figure than what replaced him in 1815. Hmm. Um, so, in, in the conservative reaction of 18, you know, late 18, 1820s. And, and this is your this is your more cautious, less Napoleon. Uh, you're less of a Napoleon file now, and, <laughs> and you have that position. Yeah, yeah, no, in, in the sense that again, I, I, I have a more, uh, I, yeah, toned down my. My uh, Napoleon uh, admiration, kind of thing, but I, in the last theme, I, I, I still think that it might have it might have been better for him to have won. Mm. Um, it would it, it would have been impossible, and it's certainly not with the mistake that he committed with Spain and Russia. Um, but yeah, I think Andrew Roberts have written right an interesting article there uh, in the when after he published his uh, biography of Napoleon, arguing. Yeah, that you know, same same point of that how beneficial Napoleon's all you know victory or success in whatever shape might have been in Europe. Um, ultimately, see, ultimately Napoleon moves. Sorry, Europe moves in the direction that Napoleon was pushing it. Mm. Yeah, maybe. I'm just uh, I'm a, a, a mafia don with <laughs> liberalizing tendencies. Yeah. In the alt, and ultimately, it's still a mafia don. <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, but uh, for I mean, he just in the end, it's you know the scorpion who takes the, the right. uh, and the frog know. going across the river. Ultimately, <laughs> the scorpion just can't help himself. No, absolutely, especially uh, you know when you look at Napoleonic uh, uh, policies of repression in places like Calabria, certainly Spain, um, or yeah. just or just you know or just double the or just France, Spain and and Russia. I mean, isn't there some extent in which the guy just got bored? Um, or that he just couldn't help himself. I think, um, and that's one of the one of the issues that I'm still struggling reconciling. So that's the, that's a problem that remains. Yes, in a, in a sense that I'm, I'm working on the on 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 the project, re- you know, evaluating Napoleon's how he functioned, how he operated, and you see you see him at the top of his game. I mean. He, he, in 1804, 5, 6, 7, I don't think there is anything that could have beat him there. And it's just astonishing, the efficiency, the approach. But then in 1806, I think he, he famously says that, you know, he can't sustain this. And he says, I haven't maybe another six years, and then uh, physically I will not be able to keep keep this up. And he's like prescient here, because mm-hmm. in the, well, indeed you see Napoleon is very different. 
Uh, and uh, in that, I don't know if it's, if, it's, if it's the reason for why he makes so many mistakes, you know, why he is so indolent or less efficient in, in 1812. And he has glimpses, of course, of, of his old self in 1813 and 14, but he's certainly nowhere near the, the great years of four, five, six, or there in an early one. Uh, so I don't know if it's a personal thing. You know, how much can we put? You know, there's so much burden on one, you know one man. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, but it certainly plays a role. And then that's where I can fully reconcile it, 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 how much that played a role in his ultimate defeat. Well, my guest today has been Alex Mikabridza. He is professor of European history at Louisiana State University at Shreveport and author of The Napoleonic Wars: A Global history. Alex, thank you so much again for talking uh, with us and being historically thinking, and I hope this is as popular as the first conversation, which I think is the most downloaded historically thinking conversation yet. So thank you so much. Oh, this has been a, a, a truly a pleasure and joy to spend uh, well over an hour. <laughs> and I hope your listeners enjoy listening to, to this conversation, and I look forward to having uh, future meetings with you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 